plague of the hail. And he says that after Moshe Rabbeinu uh, turned to Hashem and asked Hashem to end the plague of hail, after the Pharaoh admitted that he was wrong and that he agrees to let Jewish people go, so the Torah says, Hamater, the, the uh, hail stops, and the rain didn't nitach to the ground. That's the word in the Torah, nitach. Now, you look at the Rashi, and it looks like one of those Rashis that people gloss over, because just addressing the language and the wording. And to see how this Rashi is amazing, how there's so many layers and layers of meaning in this Rashi, and uh, let's go right to it. So what does Rashi say? Rashi says, the rain didn't nitach. What does nitach mean? This first interpretation of nitach is... The rain didn't reach the ground. The rain didn't hit the ground. didn't hit the ground. Then he gives a second explanation from Menachem ben Sarok. He quotes Menachem ben Sarok to say, What does nitach mean? Nitach means to be fluid. Liquid is fluid. Liquid is, 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 uh, is something that you can pour, pourable substance. So the rain stopped being a pourable substance. That's, that's, those are two interpretations of Rashi. What's um, Rashi trying to, to explain over here? The plague finishes. The, uh, the hail is finished. What happened to the rain? So according to Rashi's first interpretation, the rain did not hit the ground. What does it mean it didn't hit the ground? It's stayed in heaven. The rain didn't touch the ground. And according to Rashi's second explanation, Leinitach doesn't mean it didn't hit the ground, it means it stopped being a liquid, it stopped being a pourable substance, it stopped to exist. So the second interpretation is um, it stopped existence. First interpretation is it stayed in the air. So whenever Rashi brings two explanations, there's an advantage of each explanation. There must be something each explanation gives us that the other doesn't. So there's a general rule. The rule is that, as the Rabbeinu Nisim writes in his Rashi's in his sermons, God does not perform a miracle unnecessarily. If God performs a miracle, there has to be a reason for it. So saying that the rain didn't hit the ground and stayed in the air, that's a difficult thing to say. Why would God make a miracle to keep suspending the rain in the air for such a long time? Um, it doesn't rain that often in Egypt, so until the next rain, it's it's there in the air. Um, it's interesting, uh, the Gemara says that regarding the hail, that 41 years later, Yeshua needed the suspended hail for in his battles conquering the land of Israel, but that's not according to Rashi. Rashi doesn't mention the hill. The hill on the surface just actually stopped. But the rain, Rashi says, the, hair, the, the rain didn't reach the ground. So the, uh, there has to be some explanation of why, why, this, why Rashi has to uh, resort to saying that this, this such a miracle happened. And that Rashi means a second explanation. The Nachem and Saruk, who says, it wasn't that the rain didn't reach the ground, the rain stopped to exist. Rain stopped being existing to not exist. 
Okay. So the rain. Um, and Rashi says, I like the explanation of Menachem and Sarah. Raisi, I prefer this explanation. He says, I like the explanation of Menachem and Sarah. So if he does like the explanation, then why does he bring it second? He should have brought the explanation first. Usually Rashi brings the explanation first, the one that he prefers. So how come he brings the first explanation first when he doesn't prefer it? And talks about this extraordinary miracle of that the rain is suspended in the air. So here we see not, again how Rashi has wondrous things in the Rashi that he alludes to things that, that are um, uh, in all areas in the Torah. The Shalosh says that the Rashi has Yonim Mufloim, wondrous things both in the realm of Halacha and also Rashi has the wine of Torah. Rashi is called the wine of Torah. has things that are connected to the inner Hasidic meaning as well. The Gemara says a story about Rabbi Chaim and Daisa. Chaim and Daisa was very poor. He was someone who was Malubin Minisim, someone who always saw miracles all the time. And he once prayed to God, and he was given a he was given gold from heaven. And then he uh, had a dream, and he saw that in his table in heaven, his he, everyone's in heaven, and his table is missing a golden leg. Everyone has a table with a golden leg, whatever that means spiritually, I don't know. But his is, his table is missing. So he prays to God and asks God to take back the gold, the, the gold that he received from heaven. So Gemara says that a hand came out from heaven and the hand took back the gold. And the Gemara says that the Lord of Hanim and was someone who always experienced miracles, but the second miracle was a far greater miracle than the first. Why was it a bigger miracle? Because the rule is that God, Gemiri, we have a tradition a tradition that God gives but God doesn't like to take back so here in this instance because of him and they requested God took back his gift of the gold so converting that logic of halacha to this Rashi to say that the rain suddenly um, is suspended in the air to our ears that sounds amazing. However, from the perspective of halacha, it's a lot of a greater miracle that the uh, that the water stopped being water, it stopped to exist. Because the rule is that God gives, doesn't take back. So for God to cause something he brought to existence and to suddenly revert to non-existence, this is something which is considered a greater miracle from the perspective of halacha. And that's why Rashi brings this explanation second. There's another reason why the second explanation is second, and that's from the simple translation of the verse. The first, the first explanation of Rashi, while it leaves us with a wondrous picture of these raindrops in the air, an amazing miracle that seems to be un- unnecessary, it does address the simple translation of the verse. What's the simple translation of the verse? The water, the rain, loy mitacharta, it did not blank to the ground. So on the surface, it didn't reach the ground, it didn't hit the ground. Rashi's second explanation, the water, nitach means pourable, liquid. The water stopped being liquid and pourable to the ground. So the words to the ground are uh, are seemingly uh, redundant. It doesn't seem to fit into the to the sentence. And therefore, it's um, Rashi brings the first explanation first because it fits in both with the simple translation of the verse and with the um, and with the the uh, content 
of the, the miracle, that according to Allah, this miracle is actually a lesser miracle than the second. It goes into a very interesting uh, tangential discussion about the word Gemiri. The word Gemiri can have two interpretations. Usually Gemiri means something we receive as a tradition from Moshe Rabbeinu of Mount Sinai. Gemiri means something that sages have it as a tradition that goes generation to generation. So that's, that's what Gemiri means. Something which is, the, the Talmud says, Gemiri, we have a tradition from Moshe Rabbeinu of Mount Sinai that God does not like taking back. He gives, doesn't like taking back. But according to another explanation of the word Gemiri, Gemiri doesn't mean a tradition from Moshe on Mount Sinai. Gemiri instead means a tradition the sages had. According to the first translation of the word Gemiri, Gemiri means something very weighty, something that God gave us on Mount Sinai, something that, that has, has, is tantamount, it's equal to a biblical um, a verse in some ways. According to Rashi's second explanation, it's not so 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 not not such a weighty interpretation, not such a weighty truth. So, so according to Rashi's first explanation, possibly the Rebbe says the word Gemiri has less weight. It doesn't mean something more rabbinic. I'm sorry. According to Rashi's first explanation, Gemiri is something which is more weighty. And that's why that first interpretation rejected rejected the possibility of God taking something back. However, according to Rashi's second explanation, Gemiri is just a rabbinical kind of thing, and therefore that second interpretation accepted that God did take it back. It wasn't such a weighty truth. Now, the obvious question is, truth is truth. What's the difference if it's a weighty truth or it's not a weighty truth? If we're talking about how Allah question, and you're weighing a, a two verses against each other, or a or two Amoraic statements against each other, or a rabbinic statement against a Bryce against the Mishnah, then there are rules. But here we're just talking about the way God behaves. God does not like to take back. What's the difference whether it's rabbinic or or, or something that Moshe Bin got in Mount Sinai? But but the truth is that it does have relevance. The Gemara discusses, for example, the difference between shav and sheker, something which is um, a lie, and something which is. Uh, um, worthless. There are some things. The word just talks about the laws of vows, and there's, there's, or it's possible to take a vow about something which is, which is a lie. It's something which is just it's not considered a lie, just not true. Like for example, uh, Maimonides says about the size of the sun and the size of the earth that uh, the amount of times that the sun is bigger than the earth. Someone would say that the, that the sun is is smaller than that. It's not a lie, because not everyone knows what, what scientists say. However, according to... Um, but someone would say this table is a chair, right? So that's just a lie. It's, it's an, obvious, an obvious lie. So in a similar way, when, um, when the Gemara says that, that if, if there would be a tradition from Moshe Rabbeinu Mount Sinai, this is the way God behaves, then... The miracle of this would be of a more of a. What, the miracle means what's a miracle? Miracle means something which is opposite of our intelligence, something which, which defies logic. Well, something is more logical, something which is more known than the miracle is a greater miracle. And therefore, since we know that God does not perform miracles unnecessarily, and not just doesn't perform miracles unnecessarily, but even when He performs a miracle, He tries to limit the miracle to be less than the, um, not not to be such a great miracle. So, according to Rashi's. Uh, explanation that the word, according to one interpretation of the word, the word Gemiri means a, it, this is something which is biblical, so the miracle is much greater miracle. It's a bit, if it is a biblical truth that God is not taking things back, 
for God to take something back as a as a as in our vernacular a miracle of biblical proportions. However, if you say that the miracle is a rabbinical miracle, the rabbis say that God doesn't take things back, so the miracle isn't that great of a miracle. So it's possible this is a distinction between Rashi's first interpretation and the second interpretation. The first interpretation is except is it does not want to say that God took it back because they have they, they maintain that God taking something back is something that we know from tradition at Mount Sinai that God does not take things back, and therefore for God to take something back would be a miracle of biblical proportions. Therefore they reject to say that God just um, caused the the water to evaporate. However, according to the second interpretation, they interpret the word Gemiri, we learned that they rabbinical tradition, and therefore it's not that great of a miracle for it to evaporate. It is a, it is a miracle, but it's not a miracle that defies human logic, something that we've known for centuries and generations from Moshe Rabbeinu, that everyone knows that this is a out-and-out miracle, and, uh, or a, a, a unusual miracle that God doesn't like to do. That's our Rashi the first interpretation first, the second interpretation, second. First interpretation is that the, the water did not reach the earth. Doesn't want to say the water did evaporate it. That would be a huge miracle. And the second interpretation, second, that the, the water actually evaporated. There is also, this Rashi also gives us great insight to another thing, to, a, to, the, to the wine of Torah, to the definition of teshuva, to the definition of teshuva that is done by Jews versus teshuva that is done by non-Jews. Something fascinating from this Rashi. Paro does teshuva. Paro says, I and my people are wicked and God is righteous. What happens to do teshuva? So we know that for, it says that sin, God forbid, brings punishment. And when sin is erased, when you erase the sin, that takes away the consequence. So here Paro sinned, but Paro also did teshuva. Paro, Paro regretted his sin. Now he regretted his sin. He did vidui. Pyro did a confession. He says, I am wicked. I made I and my people are wicked. I made a mistake. So as a result of his teshuva, Pyro repenting, the question is, what to what extent does his his shuva have? To what kind of impact does his shuva have? Does his shuva have an effect that the consequence is evaporated as it is if it never was in the first place? Or does the tshuva only affect things from now on? What what is the, what is the content of the tshuva pare? What kind of impact does it have? So let's measure this against first of all what we know about the tshuva. Gemara says that if someone does tshuva out of love, their sins turn into mitzvahs. Their various they do on purpose. Their sins do on purpose are transformed to be considered mitzvahs. And as we learned in the says in chapter seven in Tanya. This is because the sin itself has contributed to the Jews yearning to God because he has sinned, because he feels far from Hashem. So his sin itself has become a positive force. But it is hard for us to imagine that something that's done at a later occasion has an effect on an earlier point in history. You're doing something now, it's erasing something that happens in the past, that's transforming something that happens in the past. That's what the Gemara does say. On the other hand, the Gemara says, if you do tshuva out of fear, you're returning to God because you're afraid what might happen to you if you don't do tshuva. If that's where you do tshuva, so then the Gemara says, your sins are not considered anymore um, 
wanton transgressions, you're doing them willingly, rather the sins are considered accidents. So we, the, you, you mitigate, you assuage somewhat the, you mitigate somewhat the gravity of the crime, and the crime is no longer considered a, a, a wanton transgression, it's considered more of an accident. So you, a Jew has the ability through tshuva to completely change the past. And there are three explanations why this is possible, in addition to what we mentioned before from time. One explanation is, Hashem is beyond time. Yudke Vavke, God's name, has in it three words, past, present, and future. So Yudke Vavke is about something which transcends time. When a Jew does tshuva, does tshuva, he connects to God, he connects to how God is about time, therefore he's able to change the past. Another reason why tshuva works regarding the past is because tshuva, looking at this more from a perspective, more from the exoteric perspective of Torah, not so much from the time, looking at this more from a Gemara perspective, there is a concept of, of Igli Milsim Lafreya, where something, where the Gemara discusses something that can happen retroactively, why is it something work retroactively? Because it's not something's changed, but something has been revealed that of what is of something that there's the past has been exposed to be different to the way things were the way things were things were thought to be. So, so in this instance, a Jew doesn't have a The truth is, as the Ramam makes a very clear ruling in the laws of divorce, the Ramam says a Jew desires to do the will of God. And when he says he does not want to do the will of God, that's just, he hates a heart of speaking. But he wants to do the will of God, he does not want to transgress the will of God. That's the nature of a Jew. So when he does Teshuvah, and he says, I'm sorry for what I've done, what, what's happening is, he's revealing his inner goodness that was there the whole time. He has no connection to evil. That's not him. That's the Yitzhar, that's something external to him. He is not evil. His sin isn't evil. His Teshuvah, his Jewishness, is, is good. What's, what's getting into him is his animal soul. That's what's making him make this mistake. So he does Teshuvah, he's merely revealing what, he ha- what was there the whole time. So it's not that there is a, a evil there, and the question is, can this evil be rectified for the future? Rather, there was never any evil there in the first place. His tshuva exposes how the, the, there was no evil there in the past. Another, interp- another layer of another another aspect of why tshuva has an effect in the past is like this. The Gemara says, If you have something that, in, in very, very, um, the Gemara in many instances needs to know if something's attached to the ground, not attached to the ground, or if there's two things attached to each other, are the, if one becomes impure, does the other become impure? In many instances, we have to know if something is attached or not attached. Like for the laws of divorce, for example, that a, a, a divorce can't be written on something which is attached to the ground or it's not kosher. So Gemara says a general rule. How it applies is another discussion, but the general rule is if it's going to be cut down, we consider it now as if it's cut down. If it's go- that's what's going to happen, we don't say, oh, when it wants it, it's cut down, it's going to cut down, be cut down. We say now it's cut down. And so too, since the Torah promises that every single Jew will do shuva, as we read yesterday in the Torah, the shofar will be blown, and everyone will hear the shofar, and those who are lost in the land of Egypt, those who are cast in the land of Syria, they will all return to God in Yushalayim. All the new shuva. So therefore, our teshuva is inevitable. And therefore, halachically, we can consider a Jew as, even when he's sinning, as, and not doing something of 
of um, of a lasting effect because it's not it's not lasting. A Jew will inevitably do, do tshuva. So whatever he, he does, Mendel Futafaz once quipped. And Mendel Futafaz very deep. But even when he quipped, he had such. He said, "It's better to have a thought of Navera than to have a thought of tshuva." What? He says, "You have a thought of Navera, you do tshuva, you transform it into a mitzvah." But you have a thought of tshuva, and don't do the tshuva. You thought to do tshuva, you didn't do tshuva, so, so, so you wasted your time. Anyways, but it's not a waste of time. And the moment you, you actually just quipping and saying, go all the way, that was his point. Go all the way. Don't just have a thought of tshuva, go all the way. If a person's a thought of tshuva, the Gemara says, at the moment you thought to do tshuva, even if, you, even if it doesn't last, at that moment you are forgiven. So, so the question is, what would, after the giving of the Torah, the Torah says about Gentiles, that their teshuva, their, their return to God has an effect for the future. They could, they can cause that the consequences that were supposed to happen shouldn't happen. The question is, can they transform the past in the same way? So after giving the Torah, there's a distinction. The Torah says this is unique to Jews. But the question is, before the Torah was given, do, did Gentiles, before the Torah was given, have this ability? So there's different ways of learning. It's not so simple. And that is the argument between these two interpretations of Rashi about the rain. Paro repents. So the consequence of his sin was the hail and the rain. So when he repents, what should happen to the rain? Should the rain stop to exist as if he never sinned in the first place? Or is his shuva merely about the future? And therefore whatever happened has happened already. And thus there will not, won't be anything, future, anything that will happen in the future. So according to the interpretation of Rashi, that the water evapor- evaporated, that means that the power of the Shuvah of the Gentile before the giving of the Torah is such that it's able to completely eradicate the sin as if it never existed, as a Shuvah as of a Jew. And according to Rashi's first interpretation, that the, the water was in the sky, didn't hit the ground, the power of, of repentance for a Gentile is only in regards vis-a-vis the future but not to eradicate the sin as if it never was. The evil is still there. He's not able to. He's able to make the evil not, not have an effect anymore. Not, 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 not but, but not to transform the evil to become good. And therefore, the rain stayed in the in the sky. So, anyways, we see again how this simple Rashi. It's a, a Rashi people gloss over. You know, it's yeah. like, well, oh, it's, the water hit the ground, then hit the ground, whatever. It it turned into water. It evaporated. But he received. It has a has a profound. Um, insight, in both in definition halachically of of, uh, of has bearing regarding the, the, the miracle of the Gemara discusses of Hashem taking something back or not, the, the, the definition of the Gemara statement is it a halachal motion Sinai or is it a rabbinic tradition and it has import and, and, and profound bearing on the discussion of the power of a Gentile doing Shul I want to mention one more thing um, on this subject. It says about the people of Ninveh. People of Ninveh, we read about Yom Kippur. They did Teshuva, and God forgave them, and God didn't uh, bring the punishment that, that he had told Yonah to predict what happened to them. So everyone's asked, Yom Kippur is not just a day of Teshuva for a Jew. Yom Kippur is the highest day of Teshuva. So we're talking about the highest level of shuva of love, highest level of transforming the past. So why in Yom Kippur are we talking about shuva of the Gentiles? Don't we have any other examples of people of, of, of who have the ability to do shuva on the higher level of shuva? Why do we learn from that in Yom Kippur? Never answered 
was a Purim for bringing. And the Rebbe said, a Jew might say, I just want things to be good. I want the language of the Megillah, the language we just said in Adol last night, light and joy and gladness and honor. I want things to be good. I'm not ready to do a Jewish teshuvah. I'm not ready to do teshuvah out of love. I just want to fix things. Tell me how to fix things. So Hashem tells the Jew, learn from the Gentiles of Nineveh. They decided from now on to obey God. That was enough to mitigate any, any, uh, any negativity. So to just make a resolve, resolve for the future, do God, what God wants you to do. And that's enough to bring about all of God's blessings. And I've said that we have done the amount of truth that's necessary for Mashiach to come already. And so therefore, uh, certainly one, one good thought, one good word, one good action could tip the scale right now and make it happen. Chaim. Any, any questions? All right. Question from yesterday. You're yeah. talking about Lemach. So, yeah. if I remember correctly.